welcome to the Talent Talks podcast from Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University. I'm Alan Caesar. Today's episode is being recorded during October West 2021, the homecoming celebration uh, at the Prescott campus. I'm proud to have Henna Kazmi here. She has been working in aerospace for 25 years, including spacecraft manager at Boeing and as an engineering project manager at NASA. She is now a senior program manager in the Tactical Space Systems Division of Northrop Grumman. She graduated from Embry-Riddle's Prescott campus in 1993 with a bachelor's in aerospace engineering. She has since earned a master's and doctorate in public policy from George Mason University and is an adjunct professor at George Mason. Anna, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you very much. Thank you for the opportunity to, uh, yeah, have this conversation. (laughs) You're the first guest I've had in person in a long time because of COVID, (laughs) I've been doing most of these remotely. So it's really nice to meet somebody face to face. Yes, definitely. (laughs) So we're at T minus four questions. Are you buckled in? I am ready. (laughs) All right. So what was your favorite place to spend leisure time when you were a student? My favorite place that time on Prescott campus uh, was cafeteria. And that was the closest thing to, I guess you can say, a cafe, since mm. uh, there was, you know, we're in a, 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 away from the town center. So I used to hang out in, in the cafeteria. There was music. There were friends coming and going. So it was kind of a cafe-like environment. So I would park myself with my textbooks and notebooks and study there usually. <laughs> Very cool. Well, is there a particular song that takes you back to your Embry-Riddle days whenever you hear it? Oh, boy. Um, Even Flow by Pearl Jam. Oh, yeah. Excellent. Grunge era. Their first album, 10, came out in 91, right mm-hmm. in the middle of my schooling. And uh, yes, uh, many of us, my friends, we gravitated to that uh, to that uh, Pearl Jam music right away. And Eddie Vedder's voice, yeah. voice. So, yep, that Even Flow song always reminds me of uh, Prescott Campus. <laughs> That's really cool. Uh, what was your go-to late-night meal or snack back at then? Uh, okay. While you're you listening to, to Pearl Jam. Right? <laughs> well, Pearl Jam. So you have to bear with me. I have to explain this okay. a little bit. So I'm uh, Pakistani descent, and mm-hmm. I've grown up on spicy, hot, spicy foods. So when I was away from home here on campus, to make up for that, best thing I could do was this this um, uh, kind of like a, a side dish kind of in Indian or Pakistani foods, uh, pickles, it's called achar. It could be chutneys, like also you can think of it as pesto and chutney. So it was a green pepper uh, achar, it's a okay. chutney basically. And what I would do is I would always have a jar of that in my cabinet and I would take a toast, uh, uh, you know, uh, a to- slice of to- uh, bread and spread it on it and just make a little sandwich and eat that. <laughs> so that was my late night simple snack. Sometime I would add a little lettuce and make it a little fancier, but anyway, that's what I did. Oh, that's really so cool. Kinda, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's <laughs> a lot of not, fun. Not a very common snack, but yes. No, that's great though. That's really cool. Uh, I love spicy food, so I'll have to look that up sometime. Um, so what class or professor had the longest lasting impact on you either personally or in your career? I would definitely say it was Dr. Tracy Dorland. Yeah. He um, he was also our, my counselor, and he was really my coach. Uh, um, you know, I had when I came to Prescott, I was still relatively a kind of new immigrant to U.S. Mm-hmm. We had moved my family. We had moved from the Middle East, and it was five years really after we had immigrated uh, that I moved out to Prescott campus and joined Embry Riddle. 
And so it was kind of first time away from home mm -hmm. on my own. And there were tough days and anxiety days, or maybe I wasn't doing so good in class. And But I kind of knew I could always go to Dr. Dorland's uh, office, and he would just be this fatherly figure, you know, just give me guidance and coaches, like how to approach uh, some homework problem maybe, or help me uh, kind of make sure that I'm signing up for the right course of the next semester. But he was just always my, uh, like a mentor and father figure for me and his calm demeanor and just, just uh, uh, and another thing was about him was uh, just he had a good sense of humor. He didn't take himself too seriously, even though he, he knew a lot and everybody respected him, uh, you know. Uh, and so I just I was uh, I was inspired by him, and always he left a he left a lasting impression. And uh, till this day, I'm proud to call him, uh, you know, my professor and and a friend. That's so, yeah. great. That's great. Well, you <laughs> ran into him just today, didn't you? Yeah, right. So we came here, and uh, I wanted to just see him. I haven't seen him in so many years mm. now, and luckily uh, I tracked him down, and we just talked before I joined this. Uh, came to see you, and. So we'll we'll meet. He said, "Come on over," and so I'm gonna go see him after this and meet his wife and him at their house. Yeah, that's really cool. <laughs> so I'm really happy about that. Yeah, <laughs> one of the perks to coming back to campus, I suppose, huh? Yep, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> so um, now you recently took a job at Northrop Grumman where you're working on a study contract with NASA for the next lander that will take humans to the moon. Can you fill me in on what this is about? Oh yeah. Okay. So as so it is a study um, as part of the uh, large Artemis program that NASA has. We need return to the moon mm -hmm. and building this lunar habitat, the gateway habitat. Um, and so what NASA is doing is we're in the phase of where it's is awarding steady contracts to various um, industry partners. Northrop is one of them, Blue mm -hmm. Origin, SpaceX, um, Lockheed, all the all the you know the well-established names in the in the industry. They are awarding these steady contracts where they want to see what the industry experts can come back with. And I'm very feel fortunate to be part of the team to to work on it. And it's a year-long study. And what uh, NASA hopes to do with this is with these awards to, to select a catalog of new design um, mm -hmm. that they will then the next phase would be to award to build these uh, new ve launch vehicles, transportation vehicles, and lunar landers to just, you know, get going with our, you know, Artemis program. So it's another step forward in the Artemis program. Yeah. yeah. Well, and so this is, sounds like it's a competitive program, so you probably want to keep the details hush-hush. Yes. But yes. Uh, <laughs> is there anything that you can say about sort of your approach or the areas you're focusing on? Or is it like super top secret? Yeah, it's, I think we're in the initial phase. And yes, it is a competitive, so I couldn't really say much about any of it. Other than that, yeah, I think we're all, you know, competitors or not. Uh, the one thing in the space uh, sector has always been true and absolutely is today. There is a lot of collaboration. While there are competition, because that's just the nature, you know, how it's supposed to be in the private sector, there is also amazingly a lot of colla uh, collaboration across the private sectors because there are capabilities, that unique capabilities and resources that mm. companies have. And by the way, NASA has a lot across their um, NASA centers and the facilities that they provide. So it is, I always think of it more collaboration than 
competition. So, so we all want to bring our skills and resources, whether the facilities or simulation capabilities or manufacturing capabilities, and and bring them together to to you know because anything in the space world arena, um, whether we're going to go to Mars or Moon, it just it requires so many unique skills that it is becomes a collaboration really. Yeah. Well, that's great. So uh, now you're also one of the reasons you're here back on campus is that you're involved in the College of Engineering Philanthropy Council. uh, And you actually saw a number of student presentations yesterday, a number of which uh, involve sending something to the moon. What's it like for you working in that space, like in sort of your day to day job and then seeing students try to go in that same direction? Oh, I absolutely amazed and impressed. I mean, I can't I can't say enough uh, about how I am impressed by the talent and mm-hmm. skills and the knowledge and and what I see in our uh, Emeryville students. Um, I yeah. So yesterday uh, we heard all these presentation and of course we were just talking about the Artemis program and all the mm-hmm. various phases of uh, towards in that progression, and what one of the projects we heard that absolutely got me excited was this idea of gas station uh, on mm-hmm. uh, on uh, on the surface of moon so as we establish colonies start to uh, spend more you know start having building these habitats and spending time on the surface of moon uh, we need these what they call them gas station where you can as you're you know on your uh, lunar rover driving around, you need some, you know, where you can stop and maybe, you know, because the harsh environment, you need some place where you can maybe have a shelter. And that's the concept of it. And I thought mm-hmm. it was so exciting. And um, there's another project uh, that I got to see at uh, Daytona campus, the mm-hmm. Eagle Camp, part of the Eagle Camp project. So it's so the first of the kind selfie camera as a new lunar lander will land and it can take pictures of the lunar dust and, and a very close proximity. And so it seems like, you know, our students are right in line. And what I would say is that they are looking kind of two, three steps ahead. Okay, well, we'll build those lunar habitats, as I talked Mm -hmm. about. We'll build the new lunar lander modules. And then what happens? How do we now be able to safely and efficiently um, build those habitats and, and work on the surface? And that's what I think these student projects are doing. They're looking ahead and working on those technologies. And I will not be at all surprised that we, you know, they will be, they will come out in the industry and they will help, uh, you know, mature these technologies when they go out and work in the private, uh, you know, government or private sector. Yeah. Well, so that, that kind of, you know, with this talk about lunar, uh, habitats and so on, um, there's been a lot of a uh, fair amount of c- civilian travel into space recently with you know Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, and then the you know the Inspiration Four launch, which sent actual four civilians into space, two of which were Embry Riddle alumni. Um, so it feels like the thing that we've been promised for like 50 to 60 years uh, is finally starting to happen. Um, and you're working on the bleeding edge of it. Um, what kinds of things do you wonder or sort of worry about as this becomes a reality? Um, I. As a space geek that I am, and mm-hmm. and, and, and you know, my, I, I think don't we all are. A worry, bit. Yes, we all are, and <laughs> good for us. <laughs> um, I don't know if I would say things that I worry about um, because it has been in the making, like you said. And frankly, by the way, when we say we've been waiting for this moment uh, now that we're witnessing in our lifetime it's kind of the uh, turn of the into the new uh, space age really right Mm -hmm. so with the civilian astronauts uh, uh, and 
It has been in the making, so you know it does take that much time. It's, it's a capability that we had to work towards. So space station was our kind of launching pad uh, mm-hmm. per se to these bigger objectives. Now we're finally getting to where civil, you know, average people can now have a chance to to experience uh, space travel, uh, and it's no longer a science fiction uh, conversation. We can actually, in our lifetime, seeing that happen, uh, and. What I what I would say is rather than say that I'm worried about it, what I feel like there's an opportunity here for all of us, whether we are directly working in this technology field in the aerospace industry or not, of of as we extend space travel to just you know civilian population. Um, how do we kind of remind ourselves to be that one kind of earth people? I know it sounds uh-huh. idealistic, but but be, you know, instead of creating a kind of competition between nations, this is an opportunity for us to just look at ourselves as, as, as you know, from this planet Earth, as Carl Sagan said, you know, that one pale blue dot, we are from that pale blue dot, and now that we're expanding our wings beyond, beyond the, you know, uh, our Earth's atmosphere, we could work as one, one, you know, people of the planet Earth instead of, you know, different nationalities. And we know we can do that because, um, we have that uh, experience and 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 prove uh, we have proven that we can collaborate across nations uh, through ISS. So International Space Station is the finest example I can think of of really internationally coming together, just you know, one human race and working together. You know, in the toughest of political differences between Russia and and U.S. Our cosmonauts, astronauts, were working together in the space station. So there's absolutely, and, and, and not just those two countries, internationally, Asia, Europe, across the world, in South America, we've had astronauts from all uh, parts of the world working together as, you know, just astronauts. And I think that's what I hope we keep our focus on, you know, exploring the space for the peaceful purposes of our extending uh, uh, just kind of human race and utilizing those resources in the outer space that we can, the economic potentials that are out there, but doing it as, as you know, people of the earth rather than, you know, having that national national security type competition. This is the only thing I'd say that we have an opportunity here to think about all of us across nations. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I mean, I sort of the ISS is like the the realization of like the, the Star Trek ideal of like this multicultural, uh, multiracial, multi-species, uh, you know, all in one uh, place. Yeah, I really hope we keep that in the forefront rather than as an ideology in the background. That's really maybe mm-hmm. what I'm getting at, that we, we keep our eyes on that purpose. Yeah, well, so you're, you're pretty hopeful then that... Um, we, it's possible to have sort of an international peaceful use of space. I am hopeful. Some may think I'm too idealistic, but I think we have an opportunity. And as as putting, like I said, putting it in the forefront, okay, you know, why don't we collaborate together? Because if you think about it, Alan, um, what I just explained, you know, Building these new lunar habitats, going to Mars, is going to require collaboration rather than competition between firms and expertise, right? Similarly, going out to explore the space and, we're, you know, after the moon and Mars, there's, there's still a lot of space, there's deep space travel. We 
can only do that collaboratively, to coming together, just like we worked on ISAS and gained that in-space, uh, you know, uh, experience collaboratively across nations. So that's that's the best uh, chance of our success uh, of of really having a deep space exploration uh, capability uh, uh, coming in the next generations. Yeah. Well, so uh, you talk about competition, and you worked in space-related projects in both the public and the private sectors. What do you think of the uh, particular roles these days of public versus private, and is is one uh, better suited for certain types of projects than the other? Private versus public is far more blended today Mm. than it was, let's say, in our first space age, right, the Apollo era. It was really driven by government and government funding and government objectives and government was dictating, um, you know, what space programs were going to be, you know, developed. Um, we have, you know, 56, 60 years later, uh, and rightfully, we've come to a point what we call the new space age. So these companies are enabling civilians to go in space and do space travel and rather than be, you know, that's it, um, NASA trained astronauts. While that's happening, it is a commercial focus. So it is a commercialization. Um, we are in very early stages of that era, right? At the turning, so what I would say is that we're not separate from government. We are reliant on government, not only their uh, government funding, but also government uh, objectives. So the Artemis program, right? So that uh, that came in place. Now that is a government-funded objective, and so so the companies are supporting and and getting funded to set our lunar habitat, and then has have it as a launching pad to then establish our colonies in, on Mars. So government and private sectors are really our partners. So the roles have changed. It's not that government is dictating what needs to happen. They have goals and objectives, and here's a private sector partnering with them and advancing those goals. And and so that's how I see so it's great now. And I what I suspect in the next 20 to 30 years, we really are going to see what you may think of truly private privatization of space travel, but we're we're at the um, early stages of it. Government is still very much part of the equation. Okay, that makes okay. sense. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You're an engineer, yeah. um, and engineering to me feels like a very tangible, kind of grounded, practical type of study. Um, you're usually trying to solve like sort of very specific problems. Um, my perception is that public policy is very <laughs> different. Like you're still trying to solve problems, but they're more conceptual, if that's the right word. Like the answers are less obvious. The feedback loop is longer. You know, uh, it's harder to see if things work. There are a lot of externalities you can't control. How, how did you get into public policy? Why did that appeal to you? It seems like such a completely different uh, realm. Um, yeah, they, they do. At the face of it, they do seem very different. One uh, social science and one is more towards, you know, hard science, right? Mm-hmm. And, and and so um, I think professionally by education, I gravitated towards math and, and engineering, uh, and that was my skill set. And, uh, and uh, aerospace was definitely something that was my passion, and I always knew I was going to do that. Public policy is a kind of 
how do I, the best way I can describe it, public policy is kind of throughout, is, is, is woven throughout everything we do, whether we are engineers, whether we're doctors, whether we're, uh, you know, pilots or, or, or mechanics or technicians or, or any, any, any profession, any trade you may be in. Policy, public policy is really kind of woven into our day-to-day uh, things. Um, you look around, just we're here in this uh, office, in this room, and, and doing this podcast. If you look around, there are a lot of things here. The the way these lightings are, the the way the the, the you know, sprinkler system is set up, mm-hmm. these are all out of policy and regulations. Policy dict- drives the regulations and regulations. So it's, it's, so it's all part of us. It's all around us. And it's so part of us that we don't notice it. But, but what interested me in public policy is that um, this is really where the decisions come from, how, you know, data that impact our day-to-day lives um, and and what government does, what government programs, what priorities government has. Those are all policy discussions and they impact us, whether in our professional life, in our personal lives, our kids go to school, what curriculum, what, what is the priority of what they're studying. That's all based out of policy, public policy discussions and those debates. So that was always my uh, interest as a social science was always my interest. So yes, I knew always that I was gonna I was gonna go in that route and using engineering and the technical training that I've gotten actually has helped me. It helped me in my public policy education because policy is driven by hopefully <laughs> you would always hope based on some data, some uh, analytical uh, um, context to the discussions that we have. There's some trend analysis based mm-hmm. on that. This is the policies we should make in XYZ area. So there is a lot of technical content and calculation behind many policies that, that then eventually become regulations. So there's a connection there, <laughs> technical connection, you can say. Uh, so yeah, uh, that's kind of how I brought the two together, I guess, two disciplines in my, in my career, in my professional life. <laughs> That's really cool. Um, now, I feel like I would be remiss if I didn't mention your work on uh, SOFIA, the Strat- Stratospheric Observatory for Infrared Astronomy. Uh, you were a project manager for that. Uh, what, what was your specific role there? And uh, tell me what you know, what you did and what you, how you enjoyed that work and that project. Oh. That's a pretty special uh, thing that you were doing. So Sophia was absolutely the highlight of my career. It was a unique opportunity. Uh, it was a, uh, I had that opportunity to lead um, as a program manager. So I was a director of program manager management on the Sophia program. So, and uh, my role was to help uh, maintain the SOFIA mission operations. Mm-hmm. So the operations side of SOFIA. SOFIA is an infrared observatory. It's a telescope that is uh, uh, mounted on a modified um, 747SP plane. It's an old plane that uh, NASA acquired. And it's a collaboration between German Aerospace and NASA. And um, it is one of a kind, unique observatory, airborne observatory. Mm-hmm. We fly at 42,000 feet and uh, 42 and above, and we take uh, infrared images of the and it's infrared astronomy. Um, I was absolutely felt fortunate to work on it on this unique mission, and my job was really basically was to make sure the operation, the plane flies, and all the uh, you know there's a lot of ground equipment. There's a, a, there are a lot of science instruments aboard besides the telescope on mm-hmm. the plane that. Uh, 
capture the data, observatory data, and, and then translate that into these beautiful images that we see later on. So I just managed a, you know, a program team there, uh, uh, and uh, it was like a highlight of my career, like I said. I had a, uh, I was fortunate enough to fly with Sophia. As a manager, I was able to fly a few times. And uh, so we had a whole full mission operations team. So I was called it, Sophia had a, you know, airborne mission operation control room. And it's a, another wonderful example of international partnership with our German mm. partners. That's really cool. And I was definitely super excited when it, uh, one of the perks of working at Embry-Riddle is that Sophia came and landed at the Daytona Beach campus when I was, you know. Oh, that's uh, right. Yeah. And so, you know, there were lots of their shuttle buses that went out there, lots of students, faculty. I went on board. It was really exciting and such a cool piece of equipment to see and to walk through. Um, so really great to you know meet somebody who's super involved in it. Oh, thank you. Yeah, and Sophia has a large international community uh, involvement, right? Scientific community who uh, you know has used Sophia for a lot of their astronomical mm-hmm. observations and studies. So yes, it's a it's a prominent observatory, and I'm really proud to be part of it. Uh, thank you. Great, great. Well, so we're solidly in orbit now. <laughs> so I have uh, two more questions for you before we go to break. Uh, one, what do you think, uh, what skills do you think are critical to succeeding in your line of work? In my line of work, um, there is kind of two step process. Um, <clears throat> one is kind of starting off uh, after college, starting as you're starting off in your career in the aerospace field, is kind of honing in on some key technical um, aspect. So personally, I um, started out in design and development and qualification of uh, space electronics, uh, power processing units. Okay. Now, that sounds very like specific, but what that helped me learn uh, starting on my career was kind of the the, the unique requirements that you need to understand to build hardware, whether it's launch vehicle, whether it's lunar landers, or whether it's satellites uh, of the space environment. Mm-hmm. And it, because once you launch something, you can go and go fix it. it so it needs a lot of redundancy. It has uh, the harsh space environment, the lo- harsh launch loads. So you learn those kind of key, un- un- by designing some space hardware, you get like a working understanding of those key space hardware requirements. So that's one step. But then next uh, step, probably more important, is under having that system uh, system level understanding of how to build these, um, you know, uh, satellites or just large space systems, whether it's launch vehicles, satellites, uh, or habitats or gateways. Um, having a system-wide uh, understanding of all the subsystems that come together to give you this one f- complete system. That is something I think um, is important skill set that I was able to pick up. So what I call it, uh, and, I, and I, I work towards being a program manager. I just like managing these technical programs. That was something I got into. And I call my skills as a, a mile wide, inch deep, meaning understanding those larger system and uh, mm-hmm. and subsystem how they come together to make one system whether it's a satellite or, or other or launch vehicle etc um and just kind of understanding the risks in and when you are building space hardware and and anticipating some of those risks and planning for this that's a mm-hmm. very critical skill set as a program manager in space when you're working on space hardware so that is something you uh, yeah, just over time you have to develop, I think. Uh, 
So I'm not okay. sure if I answered your question. No, I think I think you got it. I think I got it. And the uh, mile wide, inch deep sort of me- uh, speaks to the scope of it, right? Yeah. Um, so if you could go back in time and give your younger self one piece of advice, what would it be? Okay, it's a non-space advice, but it would be, I would go back and buy my first house sooner than I did. (laughs) (laughs) I know, it's not very, uh, yeah, I think just kind of investing. When we're young and we're starting our career, you know, we're not really thinking often along those lines, Mm -hmm. but I say, wow, instead of paying high rents in the Silicon Valley where I started my aerospace career, if I just bought a small place, well, I would, you know, it would have been, I would have been 30 years later, it would be great. So I, my advice to myself would have been, oh yeah, invest in real estate as early as, 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 as soon as I started my professional career, started, you know, making a living. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, buying a house in Silicon Valley in like 1994 would have been fantastic, right? <laughs> exactly. So that's, that's the advice I would give myself if I could go back. <laughs> That's so good. That's so good. Uh, All right. We'll be right back with the splashdown. Hey, Talent Talks listeners and fans. Um, Giving Tuesday falls on the first Tuesday after Thanksgiving, and it's the unofficial start of the season of giving. It's also an international celebration of generosity. So I hope you'll celebrate with me this year. I'm inviting you, um, our alumni, uh, my fellow employees, fans of Embry-Riddle and fans of this show, to be part of the movement that's funding student success here. Um, In the past, we've raised as much as $40,000 in a single day with our Giving Tuesday campaign. This year, our goal is to show just how many supporters will come together on that special day. And I want you to help us reach our 200 donor goal. Um, Personally, my gifts to Embry-Riddle support the women's soccer team uh, and a specific flight scholarship that's important to me. But my Giving Tuesday donation this year will go to the students at WIKD Radio. It was their idea to launch this podcast, and they provided so much of the technical support and audio editing to get us started. And if you have any personal history with Embry-Riddle, I'm sure there's a student club or a college or a scholarship that is particularly close to your heart. Um, So your gift today to whatever uh, area of focus matters to you will enable our students to soar to new heights. I want you to visit givingto.ereu.edu slash gt to see what it's all about. And though Giving Tuesday is just one day, November 30th, um, you can give early and be counted. I'd personally be super grateful if you visited the page and not only made a gift today, but also helped us spread the word. You know, email your friends, post on social media, send a group message to some of your old college buddies, send a carrier pigeon, whatever it is that you do, I am grateful for you. Um, visit givingto.ereu.edu slash gt and participate in Giving Tuesday with your donation today. Thank you so much. All right, Hannah, are you ready for the splashdown? I am ready. Come okay. Back home. <laughs> uh, what was the one experience that got your heart hooked on aerospace? One, I can definitely um, say that one moment, my early part of my career, I was um, working, I was assigned as a called vehicle engineer. Mm-hmm. This is the satellite manufacturing floor. So we would call it, we call it high bay typically. And uh, I was just this young engineer and uh, you know, just uh, basically my job was to be a floor engineer. So if any uh, technical issues came up, they would call me and I would have to disposition to fix the whatever the issue was at the time of, you know, as you're building the hardware, uh, putting it together as one satellite. Um, and I realized, I remember very well, 
that I was uh, <clears throat> inside this hollow kind of uh, cylinder. So that, that's where the propulsion tanks were eventually go. And then, they, you know, you, you build out your satellite. So it was like a structural shell yet. We hadn't installed all the components. I was in there doing some inspections. And I realized that, oh my God, I'm, I was just literally touching the surface, the structural surface for some inspection and say, this satellite will be launched in a geosynchronous orbit but 22 some thousand miles above our surface and my DNA is going with it. <laughs> <laughs> and that was just a fascinating idea that just, I mean, I guess it was obvious, but it didn't, you know, it just at that moment it occurred to me that, wow, uh, you know, I, I'm, I can't be, I'm not going in space, but my DNA, the part of me is going there. And so I think that was, that's, that was my, yeah, <laughs> I was hooked on it. And and I also realized that's part of, those are some of the part of aspirations that many of my colleagues had working working mm -hmm. on satellites that we can be in space ourselves, but it's a part of us is going there. We're helping uh, to kind of build the satellites and it's just a piece of us goes there and it's very inspirational. <laughs> that's great. Yeah. Uh, what's a book that's been uh, important or influential for you? Oh, uh, Moby Dick. Yeah? <laughs> oh, absolutely. Moby Dick has uh, been, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, it's, it's kind of been a very big inspirational book for me, just in many aspects. And uh, um, <clears throat> one of the interesting about Moby Dick is that, you know, it's a very technical book. It, it's like uh -huh. a technical specification. I remember and as I'm reading it, and I read it after I had graduated from Riddle and I had started working. So, I could kind of appreciate some of the technical nuances in it hmm. because uh, the way he get, dives into very details of anatomy of the whale, he, oh. he really talks about, so if hopefully I'm assuming your reader, uh, your listeners uh, know about Moby Dick as, yeah. as a book, um, but he really has chapters in detail talking about the details of anatomy of the whale. He gets into technical specifications almost about the whaling process itself, uh -huh. uh, that, that's what he did, I guess, as a living. Uh, and um, he describes these uh, whale lines. So these are like the cords that, you know, the tie as harpoons that they would, you know, uh -huh. uh, catch the whales and then rope them back in. And he talks about the how to get the oil from the whale. I mean, it's a very engineering, like technical book. Huh. And what the beauty of that book, among many, beauties of that book is um, how he he um, connects the technical technicalities that he talks about mm -hmm. um, of the whaling boat and ship and everything and the process to kind of philosophical aspects of human human beings and and day to day he just interwoves this so beautifully and I I have this one kind of quote I wanted to if you don't mind, yeah, I can read yeah. to you um, to give you just kind of sense of where, you know, how he well he, he does that, right? So he's, in this one chapter, he's describing the whaling line. Like I said, it's, it's this like a, it's a very thick cord, obviously, to pull rope in a whale. So it's right. like, and he describes how that rope is built, literally. He goes into the details of it. And then he, pretty much the tail end of the chapter, then he goes into, and this is what I'll read, quote from his book, is, all men live enveloped in whale lines. All are born with halters around their necks, but it is only when caught in the swift, sudden turn of death that mortals realize the silent, subtle, ever-present perils of life. 
So he <laughs> goes from describing this rope, whale line rope, all the way to really brings it into our, you know, just a human condition, I think. So just a, so that's a book that always inspires me. That's great. I, I didn't, uh, yeah, I didn't realize that one, it was so technical and that it used the technicality to sort of draw in the human condition, sort of the darkness of our own existence, exactly. right? Exactly. Um, I just kind of knew that I've never read it myself. I just sort of absorbed from culture that it, you know, it revolves around Captain Ahab's obsession. His and obsession. that's, but uh, that it's, it's, there's clearly more to it than I realized. And actually, it's interesting if you really read the literary reviews on the book and there's so much of been written on this book um is that is the herman melville's own obsession with with whaling and that profession so he's really mm -hmm. used that i would call engineering type like technical skill set to really connect you know uh, so he really relates it that way so the way he describes these things he, he it's his own obsession that comes through whether it's for that profession or, or etc so yeah. that's really cool all right um in a completely different like lowbrow direction uh who's your favorite cartoon character <laughs> so um <clears throat> my favorite cartoon character is winnie the pooh okay it's absolutely now I love Winnie the Pooh because I have always aspired to be like Winnie the Pooh, but I'm not. I am more like the rabbit. So I appreciate <laughs> the rabbit, but I want to be Winnie the Pooh. And the reason is because Winnie the Pooh really is that that Zen-like wisdom, right? That that everything is going to be fine, and mm -hmm. he never takes himself seriously, or or really others, or others come to him with problems, but he just so calmly can help them and. Put things in perspective that everything is going to be all right and it's all about just going and eating honey and uh but um but i i really do i think i just i don't know it's a, it's a character that i just aspire to be i think but like i said i am i relate to rabbit where rabbit is just always struggling and trying so bad hard to keep everything in order mm -hmm. and have control and just when he thinks he has control he realizes he has no control and that's just kind of <laughs> i feel like in general most of us are we're trying to keep things in order trying to have control over whatever we're doing but we realize oftentimes we have no really little, so it's better off being like poo than rabbit, in my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we really made a turn from uh, Herman Melville and that dark obsession to like the innocence of Winnie the Pooh. <laughs> Innocent the time like Winnie the Pooh. <laughs> That's so good. All right, uh, so you can go to the Olympics and compete in any sport. What do you choose? Let's see if we can take another 180 here. <laughs> swimming. Swimming, okay. Oh yeah, I, I, I learned swimming really late in life i was in my oh. 30s when i first learned swimming and uh i i and i got hooked on it right away and and uh swimming is one kind of uh, physical activity that you just kind of you truly can be disconnected when you're in water swimming you you don't hear sounds around you you're not seeing anything you just mm -hmm. focus and you swim in you really can disconnect and in our in our day and age now, with all the devices around us that we're connected to all the time, I think swimming is one place you can just completely be, you know, uh, disconnected from everything around you and and just and and 
to kind of bring it home, uh, you know, with the aerospace context, you know, it's like that feeling of how you must feel like how you're floating in space, you know, in water and or like I'm flying like a bird. It gives me that feeling. Just it's just very, very wonderful feeling to swim. So I That's just really cool. I would absolutely do that if I could. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think uh, swimming and scuba diving is like part of the astronaut training program, right? Absolutely. It is. I, yes. I've heard that like that experience is so similar to being weightless in space is that the the astronaut are actually watching for like the air bubbles to float up past them when they're actually out doing spacewalks because they're it's so familiar to that sort of yeah yeah no you're absolutely right (laughs) so i guess yeah i can relate to that that's my way of getting space travel there you go there you go (laughs) all right so if you could live for a week as any person in history who would it be oh let's see um I'm gonna say Mark Twain. Okay, I got <laughs> yeah, another we're literary, back to the deep literature. literature. Here now. we go. Yeah, I I have been a Mark Twain fan, uh, you know, ever since I read his uh, 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 books, and uh, I, I guess I I I, I want to be in his head, or I could be because he had he was multi talented, first of all, right? Mm-hmm. So he was a journalist. He was a patent attorney. He was a traveler. I mean, novelist, uh, humorist, and uh, very ser- sat- satirical. Yeah, so uh, satirical. Satirical writings, and yeah. I absolutely and that sense of humor that he had. And at the same time, I felt like you know he had a lot of tragedies in his life. He lost mm-hmm. his children three out of four uh-huh. before you know his own in, in his lifetime, and. I think all of that he expressed it in this satirical humor that he did that we read and enjoy. But yet there was this this kernel of kind of the the the, the harsh realities in in the Huckleberry Finn and Tom Sawyer. So he, there's that humor, but then there's this reality in the background that he's reflecting on uh, of his time. So. And yeah, I don't know. I felt like he was just multi-talented. It wasn't you can't put him in one box. And it was just a great novelist, a U.S. American novelist. So I, I would love to just be in his company or be him. <laughs> just as yeah, what a what a what a mind. I, I yeah. would say. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's great. Well, thanks so much, uh, Hannah, for taking time out of your trip to Prescott and joining me for the Talent Talks podcast. This was so much fun. Thank you so much, Alan. I appreciate you asking me to join you in this uh, conversation. Thank you. It's truly an honor to have you. Uh, This episode of Talent Talks is a production of the Embry-Riddle Office of Philanthropy and Alumni Engagement and the students at uh, Wicked Radio. We're coming at you from, I'm borrowing a colleague's office at Embry-Riddle's Prescott campus for today's recording. Uh, This episode was recorded by me and edited by the students at Wicked. Michelle Day is our program manager. Edmund Dodarte is Executive Director of Alumni Engagement, and Tony Brown is Executive Director of Communications. Please send us your thoughts about our show. Visit alumni.erau.edu slash podcast and click the feedback link. I read all your messages. Thanks for downloading us. We'll see you next time.